Last fall, you may have heard about the conflict over fishing livelihoods on Canada's east coast. On October 13th, 2020, after over a month of violent and nonviolent protests around a newly operational Indigenous lobster fishery, tensions boiled over when several hundred non-Indigenous fishers attacked two storage facilities, damaging one and burning another. The next few weeks would see boycotts, arrests, and demands for government intervention. Why did this conflict happen? This week on Terra Informa, we investigate the Nova Scotia lobster fishery conflict. You're listening, You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. to Terra Informa. Hello and welcome to the show. You're listening to Terra Informa. My name is Sonic Patel, and I'm joined by Andrea Miller. Welcome to the show. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory in Amiskwichi, Laskaigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this region and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many other First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you are listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. This week, we delve into the historic and present ways Indigenous peoples are asserting control over their marine resources. Today, we're bringing you the first of a two-part series that covers stories from Sabaganagadig First Nation and Mi'kmaq communities of Nova Scotia, a region where the peace and friendship treaties were signed. Next week, we'll be hearing about Kadladichi First Nation fishers on Great Slave Lake in Treaty 8 territory. We invite you to take a moment to think about our collective responsibility as treaty people and reflect on the fact that the signing of those treaties meant entering into a relationship of mutual respect and that current frameworks and governments work for the best interests of some and fail to uphold the agreements made in these treaties. We also acknowledge our role as settler identifying reporters sharing these stories and encourage you to reflect on the news media you consume and to seek firsthand accounts of the issues you care about. Joining us and sharing their experiences with two separate fishery contexts are two PhD students from the University of Alberta with research connections to Indigenous fishing livelihoods. This week, we'll be talking about the Sepeganagatik lobster fishery on Nova Scotia's east coast. And next week, we'll be hearing about another fishery in the opposite corner of the country, where exchanges between commercial and Catladichi First Nation fishers have also taken place on the Great Slave Lake in the Northwest Territories. These debates have been going for a long time in many different contexts, as commercial fisheries were created 
amongst pre-existing established indigenous fisheries. Tensions often arise as indigenous fishers make attempts to fish not only for subsistence, but to enter the commercial realm and gain real economic benefits for their families and communities. This week, we'll hear from Krista Tremblett, who works with the government of Alberta and recently completed a research deep dive on the East Coast commercial fishery and the conflict between Indigenous and non-Indigenous fishers that unfolded in October. My name is Krista Tremblett. I'm a first year um, PhD student at the University of Alberta. And I also um, work full time for the government uh, of Alberta, and I've been there for 15 years. I have a, not a, maybe a straightforward background or, or path, but I think there have been some threads that I followed. And one of those threads is around community and community participation in environmental stewardship, environmental management and conservation. When I think about the context of the um, the lobster fishery, when I entered into that, doing that essay and that research, um, I was really interested in this notion of coexistence and how can problems like this sort of open up opportunities for conversations and contemplation on what it means to coexist. The East Coast of Canada is a region well known for its established commercial fisheries, and these fisheries are a part of East Coast livelihoods and identities. We also know that Indigenous fisheries and ways of coexisting with the region's marine resources have been in place since time immemorial, long before the arrival of settlers and the signing of the Peace and Friendship Treaties. I mean, there's there's multiple aspects to the history. When we look at um, Micmac specifically, um, you know, they have um, been on the Atlantic coast for thousands and thousands of years prior to Europeans arriving and settling. Um, and they um, had a, I would say, intimate, deep relationship with the ocean, with the rivers. From what I read, I understand that, you know, up to 90% of their diet was based on the what the ocean and, and the rivers in the region could provide. You know, when Europeans arrived, that, as we know, um, changed over time. Initially, uh, with respect to the peace and friendship treaties, because that was another aspect to this story that was really interesting to me, there were about half a dozen occasions where the British uh, entered into peace and friendship treaties with um, the Mi'kmaq. And as history shows, um, the British did not uphold the commitments uh, that they made in, in, in those agreements. And you know, a number of assimilative policies were put in place. Um, that really disconnected the, the Mi'kmaq from their culture, from language, um, from their relationship to the land. Krista mentioned the Peace and Friendship Treaties, so let's start there. Dating back to the 1700s, these treaties were negotiated and signed between the Indigenous nations of the Atlantic region of Canada and the British colonists. These nations included the Mi'kmaq, Abenaki, and Penobscot people, a group that loosely united under the Wabanaki Confederacy Political Alliance. In exchange for an end to conflicts in the area, the treaties guaranteed hunting, fishing, and trade rights for the Indigenous signatories and their descendants. The Peace and Friendship Treaties had no end date and remain in effect today. 
Now, let's jump forward 250 years. It's 1999. Before the Supreme Court, a case is presented. The defendant, Donald Marshall Jr., a Mi'kmaq man from Member 2 First Nation, Nova Scotia, has caught and sold over 200 kilograms of eel without a license. Marshall cited the Peace and Friendship Treaties, justifying the action as legal under the rights given to Indigenous descendants of the signatories of these treaties. The judges agreed with Marshall, stating the Peace and Friendship Treaties protected Marshall's right to catch fish. What has become known as the historic Marshall decision outlined that Marshall and other Mi'kmaq fishers were within their treaty rights to harvest and sell fish to make a moderate livelihood for their families and communities. After the 1999 Marshall decision, Mi'kmaq fishers started harvesting lobster, as was their right under the new ruling. This quickly led to violence between Indigenous and non-Indigenous fishers. Non-Indigenous fishers were concerned about the risk of overfishing and the harm to the resources they rely on for a living. In response, a few days later, the court issued a clarification called Marshall II. Marshall II affirmed the Mi'kmaq's right to fish, but this statement also said that the federal government could regulate Indigenous fishers and restrict treaty rights if there are justifiable concerns about conservation and if consultation with the Indigenous groups is carried out. Mi'kmaq fishers have always been a part of the commercial lobster industry, but the Marshall decision affirmed that the inherent treaty rights of the Mi'kmaq allow them to fish outside of the regulations put in place by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, or DFO, a federal branch. With Marshall II, the Supreme Court clarified that the Mi'kmaq cannot fish unhindered, protected by their treaty right alone, and can be regulated if there are conservation concerns. Critically, the Supreme Court left one piece of ambiguity. The Mi'kmaq and other Atlantic Indigenous groups are able to fish in pursuit of a moderate livelihood. Remember that phrase, moderate livelihood. This term and its open-endedness plays a big role in the conflict last year. Let's jump forward again, exactly 21 years to the day. The year is 2020. In September, the Sebeganagadig First Nation launched a new, self-regulated lobster fishery. The Sebeganagadig are a population of almost 4,000 Mi'kmaq in Nova Scotia. The fishery grants licenses to the Sebeganagadig band members, each license authorizing fishers to issue 50 traps. This fishery does not operate under the commercial fishery regulations that manage the other fishers in the area. Instead, as Chief Mike Sack put it, quote, we have our own guardians that will enforce our rules and regulations, so there's no need for anyone to interfere at all, end quote. According to the nation, this fishery is within their rights under the Peace and Friendship Treaties allowing the community to sell their catch and earn a moderate livelihood. But with this new fishery came uncertainty around what an Indigenous moderate livelihood means for non-Indigenous commercial fishers. And there are, to my understanding, um, two categories. There's commercial and there's subsistence. 
So essentially what the Supreme Court of Canada's um, decision, the Marshall decision did was create another category, moderate livelihood. And again, one of the problems is that has not been defined concretely. What does that look like in practice? I wonder if, if where some of the fear is coming from is the anticipation that there will be a shift to, to accommodate or account for moderate livelihood will there be less licenses say for for commercial fishery you know adding moderate livelihood to a subsistence and commercial uh, means taking a look at how we maintain viable healthy lobster populations while also supporting viable healthy communities um, some of whom are dependent on the commercial fishery and 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 some of whom um, need the moderate livelihood and subsistence fisheries and, and and some all three this past october the same tensions that had erupted between non-indigenous and Mi'kmaq fishers after the 1999 Marshall decision came to the surface again. Many non-Indigenous commercial fishers took issue with the Sepaganagatik fishery, the biggest concern being for the sustainability of the lobster stocks as the Indigenous fishery operates during the off-season. Under the rules created by Department of Fisheries and Oceans, lobster fishing is prohibited from late May to late December. This gives the lobsters time to molt and reproduce, and is intended to maintain a sustainable population. The nation that was most in the media was uh, Sabaganagadi First Nation, um, but in fact there were three um, First Nations in Nova Scotia that launched a moderate livelihood fishery outside of a Department of Fisheries and Oceans regulated season. I think there, there was a lot of fear uh, and uncertainty expressed by non indigenous fishermen that these nations were fishing outside of, of the federally regulated season. And those fears or what was expressed um, was based on, I'll, I'll say a perception, because I'm not sure if there's any empirical evidence to point to this being an issue. But there was a perception that fishing out of season would harm molting female lobster. Many non-Indigenous fishers believe that this new fishery is allowing the Sepaganagati to run a large-scale commercial fishery under the guise of a livelihood fishery. They want the Department of Fisheries and Oceans to regulate the Sepaganagati fishery as they would any other fishery. When DFO did not act immediately, locals took matters into their own hands. On September 20th, non-Indigenous fishers removed about 350 lobster traps from St. Mary's Bay, which were left in front of the DFO office. The DFO reaffirmed the right of the Sepaganatik people to fish in pursuit of a moderate livelihood and stated they were monitoring activity. While commercial fishers demanded action against the Sepaganatik fishery, Chief Sack requested the government defend their rights and prevent commercial fishers from interfering and vandalizing their traps. The conflict escalated on October 13th, when a van outside of the facility where Sebaganagadi catch was being stored was set afire and the facility was damaged and lobster was stolen. A few days later, another facility was also set ablaze. Chief Mike Sack was assaulted in the following days of violence. Commercial fishers used their boats to harass and blockade Mi'kmaq vessels. 
fired a flare at them, and seized or damaged lobster traps. These attacks were not the only repercussion for the launch of the moderate livelihood fishery. The community also faced nonviolent opposition. Several businesses in the area blacklisted and boycotted indigenous operations. This has challenged the nation's commercial fishery, which is different from the livelihood fishery and is regulated by the DFO, which is now struggling to move their lobster catches. listening to Terra Informa. This week, we're talking about an indigenous fishery in Nova Scotia that resulted in a number of conflicts, legal and otherwise. This conflict brings into question a number of issues. One of the big ones is conservation. Non-indigenous fishers appear to be concerned about the livelihood fisheries impact on the lobster stock by fishing out of season. But is the Sebaganagadeek fishery going to damage lobster populations? Megan Bailey, Associate Professor at Dalhousie University and Canada Research Chair, Integrated Ocean and Coastal Governance, doesn't think so, according to an article published in The Conversation. One of the points in her favor is scale. The Sebaganagadeek fishery has issued licenses for 50 traps per boat for 10 boats. That's 500 total. Licensed commercial vessels are allowed to lay 350 traps per boat for a total of 35,000. And there are other jurisdictions in the Atlantic that do sustainably harvest year-round. In Dr. Bailey's assessment, a small-scale fishery like the Sebaganagadeek fishery is not a threat to the sustainability of the lobster stock. So while opponents cite concerns that the Sebaganagadeek fishery is illegal and harmful. In truth, it's not either of these things. Instead, the fishery is a promise made to the indigenous people of the Atlantic coast that they would retain their access to resources and ability to live off the land. Shelley Denny, a Mi'kmaq doctoral candidate at Dalhousie University, argues that concern for lobster conservation is being used to justify infringements on Mi'kmaq treaty rights. Denny proposes that if conservation is the primary concern, that commercial fishers take a reduction in their traps to share access with Mi'kmaq livelihood fishers. An annual reduction in 2.5 to 4 traps for each lobster license holder would make room for more than 8,000 traps for Mi'kmaq livelihood fisheries. But the commercial fishing industry is a significant contributor to Atlantic Canada's economy and to the livelihoods and identities of commercial fishers. So the non-Indigenous fishers' response to a new player in the marketplace might have more to do with protecting the economic opportunities of the commercial lobster industry than concern for lobster stock conservation. Krista Tremblett has similar observations. The violence that we saw reported was all in that lobster fishing area 34 in in southwestern Nova Scotia, which is where the Sabaganagadee First Nation launched their moderate livelihood fishery. Um, One of the other nations, the um, Potolik First Nation on Cape Breton Island, also launched a moderate livelihood fishery about a month after. 
and at least there were no uh, reports of violence in that case. Now, there were reports that Department of Fisheries and Oceans confiscated um, uh, traps um, on, on Cape Breton Island, but the violence, um, I think horrendous violence that we saw was, was in that southwestern um, lobster fishing area. And when I looked a little deeper into what are the differences between these areas, that one is in fact the most lucrative uh, lobster fishing area in Atlantic Canada. Mm -hmm. um, it had the highest level of employment between 2014 and 2018. And, and these are statistics um, that come from Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Um, and it was also responsible for 40% of the lobster landings overall. Um, so perhaps um, there were, uh, you know, that violence may partly have been attributed to just how economically uh, important and lucrative that particular um, lobster fishing area is. Now that said, there may be many other considerations that I'm not aware of. While there are tensions similarities exist between the Mi'kmaq and commercial fishers. According to Denny, both parties want to be entrepreneurs, supporting their families financially while also fishing sustainably with the next generation in mind. But restricting Mi'kmaq fishers to the poorly defined category of moderate livelihood limits them from seeing the economic benefits that this industry provides. According to Chief Mike Sack, quote, the average Nova Scotia income should be at least the starting point, end quote. There really is a big gap or lack of understanding. Um, and I, I would say uh, on, on behalf of the, the non-Indigenous um, uh, fishers, um, and specifically, um, you know, with respect to um, what moderate livelihood means or may mean. Um, and I think one of the, um, I think misperceptions mis is moderate livelihood um, means is, it's just to support your family. Um, whereas there is an element um, that's being expressed by um, nations like Sebag and Agaty, where they are, are, are selling um, their catch to support that livelihood. So I think, yeah, there, there's uh, misunderstandings about what livelihood means or may mean um, in that context is my read of it. My interpretation of it was they're not, there is an active dialogue um, necessarily with um, non-Indigenous commercial fishermen um, to build that understanding or to try and, and um, if it's at all possible, build trust so that dialogue could happen. I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's those who are, are living in place in, in Nova Scotia that really um, understand the nuances and, and the context. A potential way forward lies in reevaluating which frameworks and institutions are given the authority to govern the use and protection of marine resources. And uh, I think uh, what I've learned and what I understand is that I could go so far as to say the root of the problem. Um, you know, um, the Mi'kmaq are uh, arguing that 
um, they um, should be able to regulate um, fishery based on their rules and, and uh, not the government of Canada's. And then if you look at the history when um, the Supreme Court decision, Marshall decision um, um, was uh, put, put out there, um, the government actually uh, bought back um, commercial licenses from some from say uh, fishers that were retiring, for example. So again, trying to accommodate First Nations within the existing system, um, and so some of those commercial licenses uh, and the programs that were put in place and invested in were all within the existing federal structure. Um, back, you know, 20 years ago. Again, my read of it is the insistence of the government that, um, you know, the, um, the moderate livelihood fishery has to be within that existing federal um, Department of Fisheries and Oceans framework. And not only are the Sebaganagadi being held to the standards outlined by the DFO, but those standards are informed by the lens of Western science rather than being led by the Sebaganagadit's own traditional ecological knowledge of their local environment. As I look at co-management and the opportunities, that's another piece of this is right now, um, the current regulations and system um, of the lobster fishery is informed and based on, um, in part, um, Western science. And it's also informed by specific values i.e., um, you know, the economy and profit. Many nations are taking matters into their own hands to sustainably manage their fishing activities and position themselves on the same playing field to work with the federal government. Mi'kmaq-led fisheries management plans, for instance, are a promising example of local fishers leading design and decision-making of fisheries management in tandem with other stakeholders. So again, having some new, um, I guess, institutional mechanism, a group, a, whether it's a board or a committee or an authority, um, that for its First Nations led that would then work on equal footing with um, the federal government. So again, based on media reports, there seemed to be receptivity on behalf of the federal government to that idea um, about having a, a First Nations fisheries authority to work with. Um, in Nova Scotia. And then um, the other thing I, I would note, and I didn't look at this in a lot of detail, um, there are some Mi'kmaq nations in Nova Scotia that have developed uh, fisheries management plans and, and, are, and, are, and are implementing those. Um, so there seems to be a lot of work already happening um, at, a, at a, a First Nation community level um, uh, around um, around management. We hope that you came away from this episode with some new understandings of how over time, court decisions and levels of government have worked to uphold their authority over resource management in so-called Canada and to discredit long-established strategies of coexisting with these resources based on lived experience of Indigenous peoples. The case of the Sepegana-Atik moderate livelihood fishery illustrates one of the many ways in which Indigenous peoples are asserting their inherent rights, rights that have always been in place 
and were only affirmed through the signing of treaties. We'll leave you to question if these violent actions that took place out of fear are in keeping with the commitment to mutual respect dating back to the signing of the peace and friendship treaties in this region. Next week, we hope you join us as we continue the conversation and speak with PhD student Christine Ray about her work with Catladici First Nation and the Great Slave Lake Commercial Fishery. We've been your hosts, Andrea Miller and Sonic Patel. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Big shout out this week to Elizabeth Dowdell for the interview. This episode was produced by Charlotte Thomason. You can reach us for comments or questions via our email, tara at cjsr.com, or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa. Da, 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 da.